Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. Continuing with the series this morning, the I Am, and um, the text this morning is from John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is fairly fashionable to say that all roads lead to God, that whichever belief system you follow, God will weigh your good works against your bad, and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. They're sadly mistaken. Such belief systems, which include all the major non-Christian religions, have at their core salvation by works. You work your way into God's favor and to eternal life, but that is not Christianity. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, which will be the next one, there we go, we read in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Can you imagine everyone standing around in heaven, boasting about how how well they'd done to get here? And what did you do? Well, I did a lot of charity work. Oh, that's nice. And what did you do? Well, I was kind to everybody. Oh, wonderful. I, I, I see that Jimmy didn't make it. I wonder what he did wrong. In the heaven of God, there is gratitude. In the heaven of works, there is boasting. And to us who know what it is to be saved, thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. If works were the way, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. And to emphasize the point, I want to focus on Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. Jesus took three disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read in Matthew 26, Jesus began to be sorrowful and heavy. Then he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Wait here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And Jesus repeated this prayer three times. And we see the same scene presented in in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 22, he prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, just to emphasize that, it wasn't blood, it was sweat. Some people get this a bit confused. It was, he was sweating as it were great drops of blood. But he was sorrowful unto death. He was in agony. What was in that cup that caused Jesus such agony and anguish? He knew that he was going to the cross, and that was a horrible death. But lots of people have horrible deaths, and that does not explain what Jesus experienced that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
There was something so unspeakable in that cup that he asked God to take it from him. If there be any other way, take this cup from me. But there was no other way. There was no other way to redeem mankind from the chains of sin and death. Many of you will remember the hymn, There is a Green Hill. We used to sing it at school. And in verse 3 it says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Now, I don't want to find out what was in that cup. We're speaking of a metaphorical cup, obviously. I don't want to know what was in that cup, what it was that caused such agony and sorrow and such pleading with God. We know that Jesus had to go into hell for three days. What he endured there, we do not know. That's why I don't know what it will be like, and I don't want to know. But there are those, there are some that will know soon enough. Jesus said there will be a reckoning. Jesus spoke of a separation of the sheep and the goats. There will be those who, in this life, put their trust in Jesus, and there will be those who reject him. Jesus spoke of a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those are not my words. Take heed. Those are the words of Jesus. There will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. They will be wailing about their predicament when their souls are confronted with what was in that cup. And they will be gnashing their teeth as they remember the days when they heard the gospel of Jesus the Saviour and turned down the opportunity to receive grace and mercy at his hands. As we read in Hebrews 2. How, that's not there, by the way. It's not up. Don't worry about that. As we read in Hebrews 2. How shall we escape the wrath of God if we neglect so great a salvation? And Jesus was the truth. In John 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word. Have we got that one? Yeah. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Just take hold of that. Full of, Jesus was full of grace and truth. We'll be coming back to that. And he was, Jesus was the Word made flesh. And the word of grace and truth is here in the scriptures. Now, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and that we can have full confidence in what we read within its pages. Society doesn't like the truth of God. And increasingly, the values of society are in conflict with the values which we find in the scriptures. Even some clergy don't like the truth of the scriptures. I hear clergy trying to rationalize the truth of God in the light of what they think society will find acceptable. Don't frighten the horses. Instead of the church discipling the world, the world is discipling the church. This is particularly apparent when talking about the law. But I don't see any evidence from Scripture that Jesus sought to rationalize or water down the word to satisfy the itching ears of his listeners. In Matthew 5, we read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away. 
Whether we like it or not, the law of God stands. And it has not changed. It is as applicable today as it was in the days of Jesus. That is a very inconvenient truth for our society. But it is not one that the church should sweep, should sweep under, the, under the carpet. Jesus was grace and truth. And we as a church should be able to embrace both concepts together, just as Jesus did. Do you mind if I just have a, a little bit croaker today? Excuse me. This is Vinto. You probably remember that from the last. <laughs> hmm. Thank you. If you have a basic understanding of the Bible, you will know that the law was given to Moses as he led the children of Israel through the desert following their escape from Egypt. Now, it's important to understand this. There were three sections to the law as given to Moses. There was the ceremonial law, there was domestic law, and there was the moral law. Now, ceremonial law basically is about the procedures relating to the temple, temple worship, including the bringing of animals for sacrifice and all that sort of thing. And then there was domestic law. <clears throat> now, they've just come out of Egypt. The children of Israel being led by Moses just come out of Egypt. They're in the desert, so they need a bit of guidance. Don't eat shellfish. Well, that's common sense. When you don't have a fridge, you don't keep shellfish. In the desert, they wouldn't keep very well. Don't eat pork. There were a number of laws regarding what they could eat, all very sensible in the circumstances. Now, Leviticus 19, I've just picked this one out. I'm going to refer to it again later. Leviticus 19 says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. That's common sense. Materials stretch at different rates, so if you sew them together, they'll soon be out of shape. That's domestic law. And then we come to the moral law. The moral law, don't steal. Don't indulge in sexual immorality. Don't bear false witness. These are examples of the moral law. Now, there are those who say that these laws are old-fashioned or irrelevant and no longer apply, and they are partially correct. The ceremonial laws cease to be relevant after the resurrection of Jesus. We no longer need to bring our... Uh, animals to the altar to be sacrificed. Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. The domestic law ceased to be relevant. We can, we can eat what we like. But the moral law still stands. And that is the law that Jesus was speaking of when he said that not one jot or tittle will be removed from the law until heaven and earth pass away. Now, the moral law was included in the law of Moses, but it predated Moses. The moral law, and this is really the, the, the crux of it all, the moral law came into being when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the law of sin and death came into the world. And that's the same sin that's in the world today. Sin being the action, of course, of doing something that is against God's law. So the moral law was written down by Moses for the avoidance of doubt, but it did not begin with Moses. It was the moral law by which the activities of Sodom and Gomorrah were judged in the days of Abraham, 500 years before Moses was born. The law of sin and death was there from the beginning, and it shall be there at the end. And it's very important to understand this, because there are those who say that the law as given to Moses is old-fashioned and doesn't apply anymore. 
I heard a bishop on television trying to say that the old-fashioned laws of the Old Testament didn't apply. And he used the example of sewing different materials to each other. This particular bishop had a lifestyle that would, was incompatible with the scripture. He was scoffing at the idea that the law could be taken seriously. But can you see what he was doing? He used that verse, which is domestic law, to discredit and ridicule the moral law. He was taking domestic law to undermine the whole idea that the moral law still stands. When anyone comes on television debunking the notion that the law has any relevance in our modern society, I'm almost certain that they will quote from the domestic law to justify their position. Don't be deceived. The moral law still stands and is as valid today as it was on the day that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, there are those who would say that reference to the law is judgmental, but that's not the case. If I say that we should not steal, I'm not accusing anyone of stealing. I'm simply stating what one of God's laws happens to be. But is it possible to be true to the word without alienating society? That is a question that the church seems to be struggling with. Well, if it isn't possible to be true to the word, whilst at the same time manifesting the love of God to the unbeliever, then there's something wrong with our gospel. The grace of God and the truth of God must go together. Now, <clears throat> Max, of course, my son is here. Did he make it? Max, <clears throat> who many of you know, is my son. I love him dearly. Now, if he entered into an adulterous relationship, I would be upset. But what I... <clears throat> and he's probably not the only one. But, but would I still... But would I still love him? Would I still love him? Yes. Would I still put my arms around him? Yes. Would I weep with him should the circumstances arise? Yes. Would I condone his activity? No. Were I to condone his activities or turn a blind eye to them, I would be doing him no favours. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the church is doing society no favours by trying to avoid the subject of sin and what constitutes sin. If Jesus were walking in our midst today, would he remain silent on the subject of sin? Not of the Gospels that are believed. Consider these examples. I've just picked out three. There was a Samaritan lady drawing water at the well, and Jesus asked her for a drink. Then he said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. She then said, where can I get this water? And Jesus said, go and fetch your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus replied, no, you've had five husbands, meaning she'd had five adulterous relationships. You've had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. He preached the gospel of salvation, but he also revealed the sin in her life. And then there was a lady caught in adultery and brought to the elders by Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> now, I don't want to go into the detail. It, it's quite a complex one, this one. I don't want, want to go into detail. But the, the elders who had brought this woman to Jesus had not complied with the rules of evidence as required in the book of Deuteronomy. So they could not, they, she could not be judged 
because the rules had been missed. However, they were trying to catch Jesus out. And that is when Jesus said, as you probably, many of you will know this verse, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. Now when the elders had disappeared, Jesus said to, to the lady, have they not condemned you? She said, no. He said, neither do I condemn you. But he didn't stop there. Neither do I condemn you, but go away and sin no more. He knew she was guilty, but he forgave her. He forgave her, he was gracious towards her, but he warned her against continuing in sin. And then there was the cripple lying on his mat by the pool of Bethesda. <clears throat> He'd been there for 38 years. He was crippled and he was unable to get into the, so was theoretically, healing waters at the pool of Bethesda. He couldn't ever get in, so he'd been there for 38 years because no one would help him. So Jesus came along, had a little chat with him, and said, pick up your mat, pick up your mat and walk. And the cripple was healed. Now, it was a requirement of the ceremonial law, right? The ceremonial law that if you were healed, you had to go to the priest and show the priest that you'd been healed. So the cripple went to the temple. A little later, Jesus came to the temple and seeing the man said, stop sinning, lest something worse befall you. Now, Jesus demonstrated the love of God and the grace of God, but he followed up with a warning which we should heed. We don't know what that man was doing. We don't know what sin it was that Jesus told him to stop doing. Clearly, there was something in this man's life, but Jesus said, stop sinning, lest something worse befall you. Sin has consequences. It has consequences for the individual and it has consequences for society. We as a church need to know how to bring the love and the grace of God to a lost world whilst having the courage to stand on the truth of God and to declare what is right. And Jesus was the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have life more abundantly. What does that mean? Are we all going to be rich? Are we going to win the lottery? Well, we may do. But that is not the life of which he spoke. And I'm not saying that wealth is wrong. But the life that sees wealth as the answer is not a life that satisfies. But it's not just the rich who seek wealth. It's virtually everyone in our society. We believe that if only we had a little more, life would be wonderful but it's a mirage. Max has a friend who's a multimillionaire. He has 14 cars. Now, I'm not condemning him because he has 14 cars. Judge not that you be not judged. We're all prone to indulge ourselves in acquisitions to varying degrees. You know, we'd like a new kitchen or wouldn't a new car be nice? Obviously, the more you have, the more you can indulge yourself. But why would Max's friend want 14 cars? Would he not be satisfied with 13 cars? Will he, will he one day decide that what he really needs is 15 cars? And when I look at this, I ask myself, why would he want so many cars? Is there something within him that he needs to satisfy? Because if that is the case, I think I can safely say that buying more cars will not fill the gap. And society in general is no different. We chase what the multimillionaire has. We chase possessions in the belief that they will satisfy us. And in so doing, we fall into the same trap as the multimillionaire. 
If we had what he has, we would not be satisfied any more than he is satisfied. The abundant life of which Jesus speaks is found in a relationship with God that brings a peace and stability that transcends the circumstances. See what Paul says in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul had a stability in God regardless of his circumstances. Rich or poor, he was at peace because his needs were satisfied in his relationship with Jesus. Job is another who is an inspiration in the way he dealt with adversity. I don't know if you've read the book of Job, uh, but if you haven't, read the first two chapters and then the last chapter uh, because it sort of encapsulates it. But Job's, a, Job's another. He's a, an inspiration as to how he dealt with adversity. He was one of, if not the richest man on the planet. And God allowed everything he had to be taken from him. His house, his livestock, even his children. Now, how would we react? Lord, what are you doing? Why have you done this to me? But instead of shaking his fist at God and saying, why has God allowed this? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, those for me are some of the bravest words in the Bible. Just like Paul, rich or poor, Job had peace. Job's stability was not in the things of this world. His peace and stability and confidence were in God. Now, just like Job, we're not immune from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare said. But the life we can have in God transcends the events of this world. And that is the life in abundance of which Jesus speaks. And the door to that life, as Izzy, is it, I don't know, is it, is it here today? No? Right. Three weeks ago, uh, Izzy reminded us that Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door to peace and forgiveness in this life and the door to eternal life when our time has come to depart this world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so it is. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.